You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of the Family Gamers Podcast. This is episode 354. Hey, and hello, everybody. We are super excited to be here once again for the show. We are the Family Gamers. As always, I'm your host, Andrea, and I am joined by my lovely and wonderful and amazing wife, Anitra. That's me. And this week, we're making history. We are. Are we making history? We're at least looking we're at history. We're talking about we're history. We're talking about history. <laughs> Our topic this week is going to be history games. We did this... 220 or so episodes ago and we're going to come back and we're going to look at some new stuff that's come out just kind of talk about some stuff in the you last know. five years yeah i mean we, we've game schooled we in the middle of that our kids are a whole bunch older so you know there's more games that have been out there so that's what we're going to talk about this week but first i need to i have a fact you have a fact I, tell me i do i do have a fact okay so i think nobody is going to be surprised to hear that in 11 episodes i'm going to talk about you know, years at 365, right? But my fact this week is actually about years. Weirdly, why is that? Here's why. The oldest Babylonian calendar was a lunar calendar of 12 months. Okay. It consisted of alternating 29 and 30-day months. Okay. That means that the oldest Babylonian calendar was a calendar... With 354 days. Huh. Interesting. If you do 29 times 6 and 30 times 6 and add those up, you get 354. Now, of course, we know that's a gross underestimation based on, you know, science and hundreds and thousands of years of observation. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. there you go. That's my fact. Pretty simple one this week. Very cool. The 354-day calendar of Mm -hmm. ancient Babylonia. And they haven't even destroyed the world yet. Or was that the Mayans? I guess that was the Mayans that are supposed to destroy the world. But anyway. Oh, man. We also have a message from our sponsor. As a reminder, First Move Financial is letting us know how they would work with a young family, earning a combined $100,000 with a net worth of about $25,000 and the goals of buying a home and growing their family in the next few years. One of the most surprising areas that a young client like our example can get out of working with a professional advisor is in using that person as a financial coach. A lot of the conversations we would have with this client would focus on education and making sure they understood what options and decisions they had available and why those were important, like the difference between a traditional or a Roth retirement account. Part of this is also having someone to be accountable to for those very short-term goals, like how much is being saved each month, or actually setting up a budget. And simply having some accountability is often enough to create positive change. If you need that kind of accountability or any other kind of financial advice, you can set up a free call with First Move Financial by going to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers and see if First Move Financial can be the right fit for you. Thanks so much to the team at First Move Financial for sponsoring another episode of the Family Gamers podcast. So Anitra, we're literally recording on September 1st. You know what that means. 
I think that means that we should do the August monthly report. Although that's also going to include, you know, what we've been playing for the last two weeks. Yeah, it's going to be all <laughs> a big pile of the same stuff. So, um, do you, uh, do you want to go first? For the monthly report? Mm-hmm. Um, sure, I'll, I'll go first. All right. What do you got for me? In the month of August, I played 31 unique games, a total of 62 times. Wow. But you didn't play every game twice. No. <laughs> Although it would look that way. Yeah, right, right. My H index is a uh, not very impressive three, but my most played game <laughs> is a game I unearthed from my mom's boxes of stuff called Calypso. Calypso is a very simple three-in-a-row game where all of your pieces are two-sided. It's simple. It's super portable, or at least the version I have is. And so I brought it with me a lot in August. And once our boys knew how to play it, they were like, hey, mom, can we play that game again? Hey, mom, can we play that game again? So I played it 14 times after having not played it for 20-something years. (laughs) Padding your stats with Calypso. (laughs) Apparently. Yeah, my uh, my numbers are nowhere near that impressive. I played 19 unique games a total of 24 times in the month of August. I played Kowale the most at four times and Junk Drawer the second most at three times. Two games that we got in like the last week of August, it feels like, or maybe within the last two weeks of August. Just played them a lot. Junk Drawer I played three times the day we got it. Yeah. We actually also played it again today, yeah. but that doesn't count for August. No, that's September. September 1st. And then I played 17 games one time. And that was my month. That was my really pathetic month of August. I played exactly 50% of my games two-player, which, you know, you can all imagine who that second player might be. Uh, Most of the time, yeah. Most of the time. 58% of my games were played at home. And I mostly played games on Thursdays, apparently. Interesting. Yeah, that's it. I played a much smaller proportion of games at home this past month than I usually do. It was under 50%, but that's due to both camping, going on a little bit of vacation outside of camping, bringing games to restaurants, and of course, those 14 plays of Calypso, I think maybe three times was at home and every other time was somewhere out. All right. Well, there we go. So that's our monthly report. That's just a little bit of a look back on the games that we've been playing. So let's talk about some of those games. Uh, I think I'll start with Junk Drawer because we just played it again. Uh, This is a game from 25th Century Games. It is either just now out or we have a very slightly advanced copy. If you like Karuba, you will probably like Junk Drawer. Or if you like that simultaneous flip and everyone places a tile or something like that, that is very much this game. The difference with Junk Drawer is that everybody has the same set of tiles and you have four quadrants or four drawers that you're trying to get your pieces into. And there's a center board, I guess, with goals, one for each of these quadrants that you're trying to match. And it might be things like the perimeter spaces score or the empty spaces score or whatever. And so the goals are going to be changing for each of the quadrants every game. They don't change in between like rounds or anything like that, but every game. And so what happens is you'll flip out a card. You'll flip out, you know, four cards one at a time. And you flip out the first card. Everybody takes that piece and they have to put it into one of their quadrants. And you flip out the next card. Everybody takes that piece and they have to put it in one of the remaining three and then the next card, one of the remaining two, and then the the fourth card, whatever the last one is. Then you clear those four cards, and then you do it again. And you're trying to match these goals, 
And as soon as somebody cannot place a piece, not that they don't want to, but as soon as somebody cannot place a piece, the game is immediately over and you score according to the scoring rules. And that's the game. It's very simple. It's 15 to 20 minute game. It's super approachable. It's really fun. I like it. Two to four player game. The thing that really drew me in, because I'm not a big fan of the games like Karuba that are simultaneous draw, unless there's really a reason to have divergent strategy, because otherwise it's just kind of like, oh, well, but this seems like the best choice. And so everybody's boards end up looking kind of samey. Junk drawer is less of that because the four goals can be so different and making just one choice different early in the game will change up how you place everything else very, very quickly. Um, with those other restrictions of having to, you know, put things in all four quadrants before the next time you can go around and put things in the same quadrant again. I really like it. And it's really simple. But some of those goals are not simple at all. And I love that kind of tension of super easy to learn. But you're always going to be able to look at it and be like, oh, but what if I could do this differently? Or I really have to wrap my head around this kind of goal and how that balances out with this other kind of goal. Mm-hmm. So I've really been enjoying it the couple of times I've played it so far. Looking forward to playing it some more. Yep, that's going to be a great one. Hit the table a few times already. Really, really a fan of it. Yeah. What about you? Well, you and I are technically currently in the middle of a play session of Star Trek Cryptic. We are. And in theory, that review will be up when this podcast comes out. Absolutely. It's going to happen. In theory. Yep, yep. (laughs) This is a really interesting take on a one-time-use puzzle game, I think. Uh, Not everything in the box is working out real well, but most of it is. Most of it is really good, and hanging it on this Star Trek IP that you and I and our youngest son all really love makes the story kind of come alive in some ways. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) This is a game where a character will be mentioned, and we will be like, oh, no, right? But you couldn't do that if this was some random you know ip whatever i should mention that this is from funko funko at the same time released an indiana jones cryptic as well and the three cases or whatever you want to call them in there are themed on raiders of the lost ark temple of doom and the last crusade yeah so you know they're really leaning into these intellectual properties and i mean funko has had a lot of experience doing ip related stuff right so it's cool to see i obviously we haven't played the Indiana Jones ones, but we really are enjoying the Star Trek one. I will say that not every puzzle is a home run, though. Yeah, the puzzles tend to fall into three major categories, I would say, which are uh, there are these pathway puzzles in which you lay a clear piece of plastic over an image and it kind of gives you a starting point and then you pull the plastic back off the image and while looking at the image but not overlaid on it, you try to trace out the path you need, or in a couple of cases, you try to target, you know, certain enemies or whatever. And then when you're all done, you you place it back on top and see how well you did. That mechanic is leaned on really heavily in this game. It shows up a lot. They do several different concepts with that, which is kind of cool. Some of them work better than others. But then the second kind of puzzle is... You know, we're going to give you some tools and you need to put them together and figure out the answer to this puzzle. 
The third kind of puzzle is we're going to throw some random information at you and maybe you can manage to pull an answer from it. These usually look like the second set, but sometimes it's just a you can get halfway in and it's like, okay, I have all this random information now and I just don't know what to do with it. We've run into at least one puzzle like that in every chapter of the game, which has been frustrating. Yep. (laughs) I mean, they do a really good job theming a lot of these puzzles, though. There's been puzzles with isolinear chips where you have to move them around a la data in the next generation. There have been some dilithium crystal things. Tricorders. Tricorders. I really like the way they do some of the tricorder stuff because they have this kind of insert and you can put different things in the insert in the tricorder and use the same like main tricorder that you hold to solve different puzzles. It's just really clever and really smart and they do a really good job of pulling the intellectual property in on that. So that's Star Trek cryptic. Yeah. So I think overall we would give this a a favorable uh, review. It's just as with a lot of escape room puzzly kind of games if you're trying to do too many different things some of them are just not going to work right it's also non-destructive so i mean you can tell that it's been used but you can do this and then give it to another trekkie that you know or something like that so Mm -hmm. that's a Mm -hmm. nice feature for this but anitra we played a bunch of games yesterday at least some of which i really really liked we actually got two games off of our shelf of opportunity yesterday. Yeah. Which is so great. So great. <laughs> and one of them was a game that I am very much looking forward to. Like, you beat me, and I still loved this game. <laughs> Every second of this game I loved. I beat you, and you probably like the game more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Lovelace and Babbage. So, this is a game from Artana Games. It is a. I mean, so, okay, so Ada Lovelace, Charles Babbage, two of the parents of uh, modern computer design, not really computer science. Ancestors of. Babbage had these mechanical computer devices, right. but they were always breaking down, and he had a he had ideas about how to make an even better one, but he was the kind of guy who just got super distracted and did lots of different things. Ada Lovelace really did figure out how the programs would work in his computer. And she's widely acknowledged as the mother of computer programming. Right. Yep. So in this game, you have these cards in your hand. You pick a character, right? So there's Lovelace and Babbage and two others. And you have these things in your hand, which are special abilities. And each one has a number. They call them subroutines. And everyone starts at the same number in the first round. And there's four rows, four rows, five rows of these, what we'll, what we'll call simple machines, simple arithmetic machines. Only the first two are available at the beginning of the game. And what these machines do is they allow you to either add or subtract one, add or subtract two, add or subtract five, add or subtract 10, multiply or divide by two. And there's a couple other ones with different values. And so what you do is you write down the process by which you move from one number to the next to hit that subroutine goal. But there's also other characters that have numbers on them that are going to give you these other perks. I don't remember what they call them, but there's some kind of like credit or something. And those have numbers on them too. And so what you're trying to do is manipulate the numbers using these simple machines, these arithmetic machines at each step 
to hit as many of these character numbers and also your subroutine as possible in a given round. Once you finish the round, everybody kind of works through their systems. If there's bugs, you lose points for bugs. If you score the subroutine, you get to use the subroutine one time in a future round. If you score the characters, you get like credit or fame or whatever it is that you track on your score sheet. Influence, influence, influence. Sure, and it's just it's this really cool like it's just it's all arithmetic. And then when you finish the round, you lay out these tokens that represent the next row of the machine, so you can then use them as well. And they're obviously more complicated. They're not like. 5, 10, 20, 50, they're like 19. Set your value to 44. Like these random things. Like multiply or divide by four. And yeah. I just, I don't know. I love stuff like this. I just think the game is super smart, very, very clever, really fun. I very much enjoy it. I think that one of the biggest reasons why you won is because I went too fast. I remember playing some other games in the past where I went too fast and i didn't you know stop and like really think things through but i was racing to complete it and you ended up beating me because you were actually using your brain Uh (laughs) well so i'm gonna say that there's actually some similarity here to math rush in that it's not just about doing the math operations it's about figuring out how to be efficient in your use of these math operations yeah the efficiency is huge in this game yeah so And that really is the part where, because I was rushing through it, I was necessarily I, less efficient. I edged you out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have more megahertz, but you can do more things per cycle. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I, it was a computer reference. Come on. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, so that's Lovelace and Babbage from Artana Games, which is now part of Genius Games. And you reference Math Rush, which is a Genius Games title. That's very smart. It is. Very clever. But yeah, that game is great. I loved it. The other game that we managed to pull off of our uh, shelf of opportunity was the Rival Networks. So you and I have played the Networks before. The Networks is an enjoyable game, but there's a lot of setup. There's a lot of overhead. And I think I've managed to play it at three players once. And every other time I've played it, it, it just wound up being at two players. So the Rival Networks is also by Gilhova, same theming, same whole idea that you're building up a TV network and and your primetime lineup. But the Rival Networks is a two-player only game. So it tightens it up a little bit. And we were hopeful that it would also be a little bit more streamlined. It is not really any more streamlined. It's a little bit more streamlined. But it was fun. It adds an interesting wrinkle uh, that the networks doesn't have. The rival networks, you're still competing for viewership. You want to have the most viewers. But you only know how many viewers you're getting kind of at the end of each turn. And then you put them in a bank where you can't look at them again. So you can have a sense of I'm doing better than my opponent or I'm doing not quite as well as my opponent. But unless you're you know, really making an effort to keep track in your head, you're not going to know your exact score until the end of the game when you pull everything out and do the final scoring and be like, okay, let's count up our tokens from the bank. I actually really liked that part, although it was a little awkward to manage. Mm -hmm. So do you think we will get rid of the networks, move on from the networks and keep the rival networks? Uh, We are definitely going to get rid of the networks Mm -hmm. because it was hard to get it to the table and it's a lot for a two-player game 
we may keep the rival networks. I would like to play it at least one more time. I think we'll keep it around for now. We have a big yeah. break coming up in the next couple of weeks. I think we'll definitely keep it around past that. I'm thinking that given the amount of setup that's involved and kind of how long the game ran, I'm not sure I love it enough to give it that shelf space and that time. It may be the kind of thing that every once in a while I see at a convention and go, oh, hey, I've got two hours. Maybe I can get somebody to play the networks with me. Mm. So, or the rival networks. Or the rival networks. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. I like it. I enjoy it. But it feels like it's a little bit too much stuff and a little too long for what the game actually is. Sure. I'm going to talk about one more game. This is a game that we got in from Hachette. We got a a little package from Hachette. And one of these games I have played four times (laughs) in the last week, and that is Kowale. Yeah, this is a Gigamic uh, abstract game. Uh, That's a Gigamic to you. Whatever. Uh, (laughs) I don't care anymore. (laughs) So this is one of those white box abstract games. So they've got Corridor, uh, Corto a couple other ones koale squadro or something like that yeah koale is the most recent one it's got these kind of round stones that look almost like they've been you know smoothed by water they look like river stones kind of yeah but they're actually wood they're actually wood and the point of this game is to get four in a row and you do this by taking one of your stones putting it on on top of i guess a stack that exists somewhere on the board Mm -hmm. and then picking that entire stack up and kind of walking it orthogonally And every time you go to another step, you drop the bottom wooden token thing off and you keep going until you have no stack left. And that's pretty much the mechanics of the game. You're trying to get to a four in in a row. We played this once. I won. And then yesterday when we were at breakfast, we played a best of three. You won two out of three times. I did. Yep. Now, you have said that you don't really care for this one quite as much as something like Quarto. I think I like this one more. And it was really interesting to hear you talk about it because you talked about the fact that the reason why you like Quarto more is because your decision space is shrinking over time. But with this one, your decision space is growing over time. Yeah, both of them are about looking ahead. But with Koala, the board is constantly changing. Um, Whereas with other games like Quarto is a great example, but even Corridor as you're placing pieces out, your options of what you can do next really shrink. And with Kowali, your options never shrink. You always have more options than you had the turn before. Now, there may be one thing you obviously want to do, like, hey, my opponent has three in a row. I need to step in there and stop that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there's always multiple ways to do that. And can you figure out again, an efficient way to start getting your pieces lined up. It feels a little bit like a chess or a really complicated checkers in that way. (laughs) Okay. That you're always having to try to look a little bit further ahead. And I struggle with that. Whereas Quarto in particular, Quarto is pretty much pattern matching. (laughs) Like I look out there and I'm like, okay, this one has two elements the same and this one has two elements the same and two elements the same. But if I put this piece out, it's going to break up those elements it has the same and then I don't have to worry about that or sure. whatever it is. Sure. So it's even though it appears to be in the same class of game, it's a very different type of game in your head, if that makes sense. No, I get that. I mean, I, I would look at it as the same kind of game simply because it's 
you know, an abstract game made of natural materials. Like I, I'm pretty basic in that in those ways, but I understand what you're saying. I mean, you again, this is one of those you won, but I enjoyed it more kind of games, which is interesting. This is a game that has a lot more in common with uh, Boop mm-hmm. than it does with the other Gigamic abstracts, I think. Yeah, I'm savage at Boop, though. Like, <laughs> yes, you are. I'm terrible at that game. I'm terrible at that game in the sense that I am a terrible human being because I'm <laughs> embodying my inner cat. You're a jerk. Yep. Yeah, I'm a jerk. That's fine. That's fine. It's so, fine. Anyway, do you want to talk about one more game? Yeah, well, I want to squeeze in one more because it's been so long since we talked games. I really, really enjoy playing as Ms. Marvel in <laughs> our new Unmatched Teen Spirit set. Mm. Ms. Marvel is exactly my favorite kind of character in any kind of fighting game, which is I am strong and I can reach you from far away and I'm just going to slap you a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> the other characters in that set are also interesting and, and neat. And we talk about that in the Snap Review we did last week. but. We didn't talk that much about Ms. Marvel because I wanted to make sure I was balanced, but I really like Ms. Marvel. <laughs> I really, really like her. And I managed to beat Bruce Lee using Ms. Marvel. Ooh. When did when did you play as who against who? I, I played the boy. Oh, I see. Who loves to be Bruce Lee. Okay, sure. Um, I mean, everybody loves to be Bruce Lee. True. Yeah. That was the one I wanted to make sure I mentioned. All right. All right. So we have a bunch more housekeeping to take care of. We have new members to welcome. We have a for science experiment to do. And then we've got our whole topic and all of that and our contest about reviews, mm-hmm. all of the things. So what should we do next? Um, let's welcome our new members and then we'll take a break. And okay. then when we come back, we will um, we'll take a look at this for science situation. How's that sound? All right. Let's do that. All right. Well, I'll get us started. We have lots of new members in the community, which is super exciting. We are just coming up against 700 members in the community. So great. Which is awesome. So I'll get us started by welcoming Jason. Welcome, Liza. Welcome to Mary Jane. And Ramona. Welcome to Valerie. Welcome to Megan. Welcome to Nicolette. Welcome to Sandra. Welcome to Melanie. Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Nikki. Raul. And welcome to Michael. Thanks so much for joining. And, uh, Look at the cute little dinosaur saying hi. Yes, he's very cute. (laughs) So, all right. So we are going to take a quick break. Then we're going to come back and we are going to uh, try some stuff. Yeah. Step right up, step right up. Prepare to be amazed and astounded by the greatest circus in town. The only catch is you're the one pulling together all the acts and attractions. This is Snap Review for Big Top, a bidding game by Taiki Shinzawa and published by Allplay. Big Top is for either three or four players, and it takes about 40 minutes to play. All right, well, let's talk about that art, shall we? The circus feel starts... With the player screens. Each of these looks like a slightly different big top circus tent. The attraction cards all have this slightly grubby looking ringmaster guy on the back, but on the inside, there's all sorts of different attractions. There's clowns, acrobats, animal trainers, and even a fortune teller and a strongman. They're quirky and weird, so either you'll like them or you won't. There's a stack of cardboard coins in one and five denominations and some other tokens. They're, they're fine. They're just tokens. 
There's also this game end card. Its style is very different, but I like it. I think it makes a great visual representation that the show is over. So let's talk about the mechanics. How do we play Big Top? <laughs> well, you start by giving every player a screen and matching token, coins, and a starting ringmaster card. Then you'll shuffle the deck of attractions with the game end card in the last five cards of the deck, deal out a single attraction to each player to be their starting hand. The player who is most terrified of clowns is the first auctioneer. The auctioneer draws a card from the deck. Then, from the two cards in their hand, they pick one to be auctioned, placing it face up. They make the first bid, or pass, and the bidding continues clockwise around the table until everyone has passed or no one raises the bid. The winner of the auction pays the auctioneer and then puts the card in front of them. It's now an incomplete attraction that they own. If the auctioneer won the bidding, they pay the bank instead. Pass the megaphone auctioneer token to the left, and that player starts a new auction. But here's the twist. Bidding will also help you complete your attractions. And only your completed attractions are worth points at the end of the game. When a player makes a bid that matches a number on an incomplete attraction that they already have, they can put one of their other coins on that number. And when a player makes a bid that matches a number on the card being auctioned, then you take a coin from the bank and put it on that card. Whoever wins the card gets all the coins on it, too. When all the spaces on a card are covered with coins, that attraction is complete. Take all the coins back behind your player screen and place that attraction in your completed stack. If it has an immediate effect icon, you can do that, too. For example, when you complete this contortionist card, you can immediately take a coin that you have and put it on a different incomplete attraction space. When someone draws the game end card from the deck, the game immediately ends. Any player with no stars on their completed attractions is eliminated. They're just done. All other players add up their completed attraction points, their clown card points, and you add a few more points for unspent money and things like that. Of course, we had some expectations about this game, so Anitra, what did you expect? This box is a weird shape and size. It doesn't really look like it holds a card game. It's square, but it's so small. What else could be in there? I was also nervous about the player count. Bidding games usually benefit from having more players, so I was actually really concerned when I saw that it was a bidding game, but it didn't have the capacity for more than four players. And of course, we expected this to be like other auction and bidding games we've played, where your bids are mostly just constrained by how much money you have and how desperate you are to get something. But that leads into our surprises. I really like the way your unfinished attractions shape your bidding in this game. It is a setup I've never seen before, and it made me think not just how to fill in those circles, but if I really wanted to win certain attractions in the first place. I totally agree. Everyone knows what your tentpole bid thresholds are because your unfinished attractions are out there for everyone to see. They know what numbers you kind of want to bid to finish your stuff. I also thought it was really interesting the way the economy ebbs and flows in this game. If the auctioneer wins the bidding, money is removed from the game. But you can also add money to the game by carefully bidding to match the numbers on a card that's being auctioned and bring more money out of the bank that way. And this really gets back to kind of what I said before. Strategically, you might want to bid to a number just under someone else's target for their unfinished attractions if you're trying to get them to take a card and spend a lot of money doing so. 
especially if you're the auctioneer, because you're going to get that money that they bid. The economy can grow here, but the vast majority of the time, you're going to see it shrink. The box for this game says ages 11 and up, but our older kids did not love this game. Circus themes don't really grab them, and auctions tend to leave them with hurt feelings when they lose. We like this game best with other adults instead. I also think some of it is the art in this game. It's not the kind of circus art that's designed to appeal to kids, right? I mean, that's fine. It's just something, you know, to be aware of. So anyway, Anitra, do we recommend Big Top? If you want to try bidding with slightly different incentives than your usual auction game, I think this is a great option to try. Just make sure you have three or four players who are ready to play this game. So, Andrew, what are we going to rate Big Top? Well, I do really think they're doing some novel things with the bidding mechanics, and that makes it really interesting. But certainly it's a family game. The economy is pretty complicated to kind of get your head around. The game has the mechanics that make it feel like it wants to be a bigger game, but it's not. I think if the player count had more flexibility in it, we might rate it a little bit higher. But for now, I think we're going to rate Big Top three and a half circus attractions out of five. And that's Big Top in a snap. And we're back. Hello, hello. I'm excited to eat weird stuff. That's what we do. I've been buying weird stuff when I see it at the grocery (laughs) store. So uh, this week for science, we have Kit Kat limited edition churro flavor. Yeah. So for those of you who have been paying attention at home, Kit Kats are one of my favorite candies. They are literally on par with Reese's in my book. I don't know why. I just really love the the wafers. So anytime I can get a different weird flavor of Kit Kat, I am on board. I am wholly in favor of the mint and dark chocolate and the uh, the coffee ones, yeah, whatever that the coffee, coffee ones mocha, are. Whatever it is. Yeah, those that are both good. excellent. So this one is artificially flavored crisp wafers in churro flavored cream. Yeah. Ahem. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, are you ready, Anitra? Uh not really. I mean, so let's talk about the smell and the look first, I think. Um, yeah, they don't look great they're an unpleasant brown they're a beige with like little brown speckles yeah i'm a little nervous about it based on the color well it's churro flavored cream right so i mean i get it and it's it's not an appetizing color it smells faintly cinnamony i I totally agree with that assessment yep like it's not a strong cinnamon but it's it's a definite cinnamon yeah yeah is churro cinnamon i guess it's it's cinnamon sugar right yeah yeah so uh i don't know give it a shot here we go Tastes faintly of cinnamon. Yeah. I gotta say, this is just really blasé. Like, there's just kind of nothing going on here. Yeah, it's not even bad. It's just bland. Yeah. Yeah. It was really disappointing. There's uh, a vague cinnamony taste to it, like you said, but really nothing to, like, write home about. Weird. Like, if you gave me this cinnamon combined with a strong chocolate taste, that would be interesting. Maybe. Maybe. not, Not everyone would like it, but it would be interesting. This is not interesting. Yeah, I, I think this is definitely a pass. I ate one stick of it, and I am not interested in eating another stick. Not worth it. Not yeah, I'm going to have to agree. Just not good. I'm going to have to agree. I think the, the churro Kit Kat is a pass. Wah, 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 wah. But, you know, we did it for you and also for science. All right, Anisha, let's get into it. 
Let's make history together. So I was going to say that the last time we talked about history games was all the way back in episode 132, but that's not actually true. We did talk about history games back in episode 249, which is still two years ago now, Mm -hmm. back when we had completed our first year of homeschooling. And I tried to do a lot of games in our homeschooling. But even since then, there have been more games for us to talk about. And I was really focusing on U.S. history, and we don't need to do that this time. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about maybe some some less U.S.-centric Well, I mean, look, games. a lot of the history games that we're familiar with are fairly U.S.-centric. So, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that being in the United States, but it is helpful to spread your wings, so to speak, and look at games that at least tackle the entire world, not just the United States, right? Why don't we start about talking about some games that talk about the whole sweep of history? Mm. I think an obvious one is probably Trekking Through History, which we just reviewed a couple of weeks ago. That makes sense. Her Story is also great for this, though. Yeah, I really like the fact that a game like Her Story just, it doesn't really specifically say, hey, this is a US thing, or this is an Indian thing, or this is a German thing, or this is a, a whatever. It just looks at, at women through world history and talks about you know some of the accomplishments that they've done. And I really like the adjustment, so to speak, to the rules that we made where anytime you you know paid the resources to put a woman in your book, you read the back of the card and everybody learned a little bit about what that person did. Yeah, we did not do that when we played Trekking Through History, but you could do something like that there as well. All of those historical event cards have a little bit of a description on the back of what they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Underdog Games does a really good job with that stuff, and I really Really, appreciate that. I'm going to contrast this with the one that I knew before this that dealt with the whole sweep of history, which is Timeline. I don't like the Timeline games. You know, I've never played them. They're not bad, but you have to already know the history involved to be able to play them effectively. Is it basically, here's four things, put them in order? It's, you have an expanding timeline, and basically you draw an event, and then you have to figure out where it goes. What a pain. Without knowing the year on that event. Mm -hmm. You can can know the years of everything that's currently in the timeline. Sure. But if you get it even a little bit wrong, then you're penalized. So it's a very punishing game if you don't know all of the stuff already. Mm Mm-hmm. It had been held up to me for years as a great educational game, and it's just not. It's it's just not. (laughs) I mean, this is one of those, like, if people think it's edutainment, right? They think it's, hey, it's a game that you can learn things from. It must be a great learning game, but that's not really true. I don't think it's a bad game, but it's the kind of game where it really assumes a certain level of knowledge that Mm -hmm. makes it not good for being an educational game. But what else have we got? Well, there is another game that we have played and we have featured actually pretty heavily on the Family Gamers podcast on the Family Gamers website that does deal with putting things in the correct chronological order that I think is a little bit better than what you're describing with Timeline, and that is Order of Invention. Oh, yeah, man, that's so much fun. I really enjoyed all those times we played Order of Invention because you've got four events and everybody is saying, okay, which one came first, which one came second, which one you know, came third, which one came fourth? You also get to kind of bet on your answers and 
it's just a much more interesting thing. And that's one where unless you've played that specific game a bunch of times, you're not going to have a lot of knowledge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so part of the fun in that is everybody is just kind of making bets and guesses. And you also get credit for being partially right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I do like that there's even a that betting mechanic, right? So the more yeah. confident you are the more you can kind of lean into what you are trying to do, which I just appreciate, especially with stuff like this, because it's really legitimate that, you know, half the cards you are pretty certain about and half the cards you have no idea, (laughs) right? And I think it's another level of thinking and decision space that you have to be able to change your, like, the weight of your answers. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I I I know, I I appreciate that. It makes it more gamey. Yeah, it does. I think that's a good way to think of it. I'm going to take a quick side trip here and actually mention a game that's not exactly a history game that we started playing this past week, which is the trivia game CDSK. Okay. That lets you lean on your knowledge in the same way because there's either four or five different trivia categories in that game, depending on where you land on the board. But you get the sort of generic category. This is going to be questions about music. Okay, what's my knowledge in music? And I can pick a number between one and 10. And the question for number one is something like, which one can you make music with? An oboe or an ubu? Like something really, really simple and and dumb all the way up to 10, which is going to really test your knowledge strongly. But it's one of those you always want to aim a little low. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because if you get it right, you get to move that many spaces ahead on the board. If you get it wrong, you get nothing. Mm-hmm. I really like that sort of getting to evaluate your own knowledge before you just dive in to answers. Yeah, it's really clever in CDSK as well. I'm having fun with that game and I'm looking forward to playing that more. I think that's one of those games that I really want to play with different people all the time. Yeah. You know yeah, what I, I think mean? So. so. Anyway, back to history, taking us off track. Sorry, man. I'm going to throw this out there. This is either my favorite or my second favorite game on our entire list of games related to history, and that is the story of Johannes Gutenberg and the printing press. That's Gutenberg by Portal Games. So let's be fair. This is a game with a historical setting, but I'm not sure I would call it a history game. I'm taking it. It's a history game. Okay. (laughs) Can you learn about history in this game at all? You can learn names of a couple of the people that were involved with the printing press. I think that is valid. That's about it. I think that saying Johannes Gutenberg is the inventor of the printing press is a valid piece of historical trivia. (laughs) Therefore, history game. I'm going to say it's not worth it for me to argue with you on this one (laughs) because I do really enjoy this game. Oh, this game is so good. Yeah. Gutenberg is really, really, really good. And in Gutenberg, you are essentially printing stuff. You are fulfilling (laughs) orders for patrons with your printing press and your resources. It's an incredible tactical game. It has working gears and it has physical sets, typesets. What are those things called? Movable type. Movable type. Yeah, typeset. Whatever. That you actually have to purchase and use to create whatever the sequence is that's on the cards that are the orders. It's just super smart. It's super fun. It's very approachable. There's a little bit of simultaneous bidding going on, a very Isle of Sky-like bidding mechanic to it that I really enjoy. 
it's just really good. It's a great game. Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> so I'm going to take a, a brief aside here. Why are we talking about history games, Anitra? Well, the real reason is because Tim Brown, the creator of Order of Invention, emailed us a couple of weeks ago now and was like, hey, have you ever heard of our game? And I was like, yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yes, we have. We have enjoyed it quite a bit and talked about it a lot on our podcast four or five years ago. Mm. And, you know, the result of that, we really kind of got to talking about the fact that we heavily covered history games on the show before we went through a homeschooling experience where we did game schooling. And so a lot of these games, even a game like a Gutenberg or the game that I'm going to talk about next, which isn't even on our list, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, are games where you can pluck out relevant details and have them at least be learning adjacent and be interesting. And, you know, maybe you haven't heard of some of these games and they would be valuable for your game schooling experience. And so that's why we're talking about them. Well, yeah, and some of these, again, like a Gutenberg or even an Order of Invention might spark your interest or your child's interest in learning more about a specific topic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've definitely found that. Or it can go the opposite way that you have a kid who's really interested in one thing and you're trying to find some more ways to bring that in and some different aspects of it. I found that really heavily uh, in our second year of homeschooling when Asher discovered how much he loved the game Santorini. It blew his mind to find out that Santorini is a real Greek city and it really does look kind of like what you build in the game. Mm -hmm. And so that was one where it kind of came full circle. He really liked Greek things, so we played the game and then from the game he learned more about Greece. Mm -hmm. All right, well, Talking about an interest leading to a game and a game teaching you about an interest, there's another game that we can talk about, which deals with music, and you can learn about music history and about Mozart in the game Lacrimosa. Oh, man. Yeah, you can. Um, <laughs> but this is definitely not a game for you to play with your kids. This is not a family game. Not that anything in here is inappropriate, but it's it's long. It's fairly heavy. I don't think it's that heavy. I mean, it's heavier than it's like a family weight heavy game. Enough. It's not that bad. No, and not importantly, bad. it takes a very special kind of kid to be interested in the minutia of the history of Mozart's life. Sure. <laughs> I probably was that kid, but I don't expect it of my kids. Yeah. Well... Anyway, it's great. And it's it's a historical game in the same way that Gutenberg is a historical game. Yeah, you can play it with no real knowledge of the history involved and kind of come away and be and be like, okay, there was this guy Mozart and his life was important. He traveled around a bunch in this area of Europe and wrote music. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Also music. <laughs> um but if you already know some about Mozart's life, or if you're interested in learning more about Mozart's life, the game Lacrimosa is an excellent jumping off point to see all of these different areas that he traveled to and all of the different music that he composed mm -hmm. and the different people he interacted with. I love this game. It's and, very good. And the double-use cards make for really interesting strategic decisions, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Our review is pretty clear about how much we love it. 
So we definitely recommend checking out Lacrimosa. Before we leave Europe, I think we have one more. <laughs> okay. In European history, we have the two-player only game, Sola Fide. Yes. So this Tetzel, hit- seller of indulgences. <laughs> this, this hits on another one of our interests, mm-hmm. which is the history of the Reformation. Right. Tetzel is, in fact, a card in, in Sola Fide. <laughs> but Sola Fide pits Martin Luther and some of the other reformers against the Catholic Church. So you can play as basically the Lutherans or the Catholics in this game. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting area control game. Stylistically, it's very dry. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. But again, if you're studying that period in history, if you want to make it come alive in a slightly different way than, you know, trying to read Luther's Here I Am speech or... You know, study the 95 or Theses or the, whatever. Or studying the yeah. 95 Theses or even just reading through a history book of all of the different people who got involved. But if you want to get a little bit more of that feeling of the back and forth as different people got pulled towards Luther's beliefs, got pulled back towards the Catholic Church, people who kind of sat in the middle... I think Sola Fide is really good for that. It's a tug-of-war game, and it gave me a better appreciation in playing it of what it might have felt like for people who didn't really have a dog in the fight, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but were like, oh, well, this makes a lot of sense. Oh, wait, no, Tetzel says we can't do that. Like, (laughs) I liked it a lot. I believe Sola Fide is now out of print, though. It is very out of print, so it's a little hard to get, but... I don't know that there's another game like it. There, I think there is a, I think there's a game called Here I Stand, which is like the story of the Reformation, which is a super heavy, like four hour Euro. But, you know, Solofide is definitely not that. Solofide is like a 45 minute to an hour card based area mm-hmm. control game. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit less heavy, but all of the cards have some stuff on them that you can learn a little bit from. So it's really good in that regard. All right, now we're going to shift gears a bunch. We are going to talk a little bit more about some American history because some of this is just covering a bunch of games that didn't exist yet when we talked about this five years ago or so. So another two-player tight game doesn't take too, too long, full of super amounts of history. That game is Watergate. Yeah, Watergate is, I mean, I don't know. I think it's kind of a two-player masterpiece from Matthias Kramer. It is, I mean, widely regarded as one of the best two-player games ever made. I don't know that I would go that far, but it's really, really, really good. I mean, in much the same way, you know, the actual Watergate was very much of, like, Nixon and his camp, and they're trying to get into the minds of the reporters that are trying to report on them and how to avoid them, and the reporters are trying to... Woodward and Bernstein, right? And... They're trying to kind of just figure out what's going on. And in this game, there's a lot of that. Like, what do you think your opponent's going to be doing? And how do you play the cards that'll counter that? Or how do you, you know, stay ahead of those kinds of things, right? And the game has this natural rhythm to it where if you are playing as Nixon and the Nixon uh, camp, you're much more powerful at the beginning of the game. And so you really need to move quickly to block the advance of the reporters and make it more difficult for them and and to really seize power. But as the game goes on, the balance of power shifts to the reporters. And so 
it's kind of worth it for you as the reporters, if you're playing as them, to extend things out and be a little bit more cautious. And it's just a really incredible back and forth flow to this game where if you're playing as the reporters, you're trying to kind of counter Nixon's moves, but also just to outlast him because, hey, the truth will always come out. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that, as you said, Nixon starts the game very powerful compared to the journalists, but his power diminishes over time. But he's constantly having to try to find ways to block what the journalists are going to do next. And in a way, he's just trying to outlast them. Through blocking, he can gain this momentum token. And if he gains enough momentum, then he's reached the end of his term. Mm. And, yeah, I guess and you're right. The game ends. Yeah, I guess you're right because the reporters are just trying to using one of the the classic like conspiratorial pinboard connect Nixon to two co-conspirators with evidence, and as soon as they connect two of them, they win. So I guess you're right. Nixon really more is outlasting more than uh, than the reporters are, but you know he's really got to seize power early in the game and hold on to that as long as possible. Because it's going to wane, right? There's just no way around that. Yeah. No. But anyway, the game's incredible. Like, strategically, just trying to get into the mind of your opponent and trying to uh, anticipate what they're going to do well enough that they don't drop a card on you and you're like, oh, Saturday Night Massacre, like, it's all over, right? So, mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting. It's, it's really, 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 really well done. This is also a pretty grown-up game, stylistically, and obviously the theme (laughs) but i'd say it's certainly appropriate for i mean our daughter is going to be doing ap u.s history this year i would say it's appropriate in that kind of a setting certainly Mm -hmm. i agree maybe we'll see if we can pull this one out i don't even know where our copy is it's on the shelf somewhere we'll see we'll find it all right so that's a little bit depressing thinking about watergate let's talk about something even more depressing but not in the united states in the grizzled yeah so we're returning to europe for (laughs) world war one Mm. This is one of the few games that we've talked about in a history context before, but it's been a while, so we'll review. The Grizzled is a cooperative game where your goal is collectively as a group to survive World War I. Simply survive. You're not doing anything positive. It's just a please don't let this war grind us down. For all of that, the theme is pretty depressing. I always feel like playing the game itself is kind of uplifting. Well, you're always, I mean, there's always this, like, hope, right? There's always hope in the game. And it's got that very French style of art to it, which is just like, I don't know, at least for me, it's like really endearing, right? You you want to yeah. get to know all of these soldiers. And when one of them dies, like, you genu- genuinely feel bad. And Not least of which because it means you've lost the game. Well, no, but I'm, not when <laughs> one dies, but... Just in general, I mean, it's 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 got so much charm, right? And it's like, the soldiers are just these cards. But when it's raining and snowing and there's bombs going off and just like all this stuff and it's just unrelenting, you genuinely feel bad for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you genuinely do. Mm-hmm. Every time I have played this game, there is one card in the entire deck where nothing bad happens at all. And that's the, that's the Christmas truce. Mm-hmm. Every time that I've played, when that card comes out, we just cheer. Yeah, it's like, oh, thank goodness. (laughs) Oh, nothing bad's going to happen. I love it. 
I did use it when we're talking about world history and and World War One to kind of drive home what that meant on a more personal level for people. Like the U.S. was involved in World War One, but not super heavily. But Europeans certainly were, and even you know the U.S. soldiers who were in World War One would have felt a lot of this of just how can the whole world be at war and how are we going to survive this. So I like the game. It's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly why, but I'll always enjoy playing it. It's also very hard. Very so hard game. I think you kind of go into the game expecting to not win, and then every once in a while you actually do, and it just feels wonderful. It feels thematically appropriate that yes. it's hard to win. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. All right. Well, Anitra, let's end this on a high note with a uh, game please. that we absolutely love. We've mentioned a few that we love. There's another one that we love, although I suppose in some ways we're celebrating the death of an airline, but that's okay. <laughs> Let's talk about Pan Am. We're celebrating the whole life cycle of an airline. Sure, sure. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, we love Pan Am. We did mention this in our game schooling episode, 100 episodes ago or so. Pan Am does some really interesting things when you're looking at it in terms of history and geography. It talks about a period of history in a way we don't normally talk about it, which mm -hmm. is to say the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, and I guess even up into the 80s, but in terms of just big business and international travel. But also the map is so different uh, than the typical map projections we see that it really kind of adjusts your way of looking at the world, at least while you're playing the game. So for those two reasons alone, I would highly recommend it in a game schooling context. Mm -hmm. But also, it's just a really enjoyable game. <laughs> in Pan Am, it feels slightly ticket to ride-ish in that you are laying out planes to claim routes between cities. But you're doing that both to earn money and to hopefully have some of your routes taken over by Pan Am, which will help you gain more Pan Am stock. The whole goal of the game is to have the most Pan Am stock at the end of the game. And money is just a tool to get you there, which I really like. Yeah, I mean, I just think the game is very, very smart. It does all the route building stuff. Well, we talked about this before. It's not really route building. It's kind of route building, route placement stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's just really fun. I, I mean, the fact that they turned the map so that it's an unconventional world map. It's just a very stylistic game. It looks like that golden age of air travel, which is the 70s, 80s. Very, kind of very uh, 60s style 60s? coloring. I yeah. don't know. But I mean, it's just, it's, it's really fun. The decisions are super smart in the game. It's got great pieces, you know, for a game that you can find at Target for like 20 bucks. It's got airplanes and airport towers and, and all this stuff and it's just everything makes sense it goes very smoothly it reminds me a little bit of the way that like viral works where you kind of place all your stuff and then you adjudicate the board yeah 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 you know what i mean mm -hmm. and viral another game that we absolutely adore but not a history game but whatever it's just good it's just really good in that way and it is uh it was our game of the year in whatever 2020 or something when it came out yep it was 2020 our one caveat to pan am would be 
Do not play it for the first time with three people. It's super mean at three. It's not, I I shouldn't say it's the worst player count. It's just the meanest player it's count. It's the meanest. Yeah. And if you're prepared for that, it's a really interesting game at three. It's super tight. It's super hard to get what you want. Everybody is bumping everybody else off of the board. I, I mean, it's still a really interesting game. But at two players, it's very open and chill. And at four players, nobody can do everything they want because just nobody has enough pawns, basically. So all three player counts are enjoyable that we found, but they all feel very, very different. And I feel obliged to mention that every time we play. Sure. All right. Well, that's a bunch of history games. There's a ton more out there. These are just the ones that we have kind of the most experience with. I was looking some stuff up while we were recording, like Innovation, I know is a very, very popular game that has a lot of allusions to history. Mm -hmm. Um, There's always more games coming out. Age of Innovation, a new game that is on the BGG hotness right now. There's a ton of stuff. So why don't you tell us what your favorites are? Um, We would love to hear about those. And Anitra, where can people go to tell us? Uh, Well, you can go all over social media. We are on Facebook and X and Threads and Instagram um, and very occasionally on TikTok at Family Gamers AA. You can check out some of our video reviews on YouTube at Family Gamers AA or The Family Gamers. We're there under both. We still think that the best way to get these conversations going is to join the Family Gamers Facebook community. Go to thefamilygamers.com slash community. It'll direct you right over there. Or you can search around for Family Gamers on Facebook and you'll probably find us. Um, (laughs) Or click the links in the show notes. They're also there too. Yep, everything is there. Of course, you can always email us, andrew at thefamilygamers.com. Anitra at thefamilygamers.com. And speaking of email... Anitra mentioned it at the top of the show. We do still have a contest going on. I think the contest is probably going to go until the end of September. And the plan for the contest is this. If you would like to win generously donated by Mark at Grand Gamers Guild, a complete set of the Holiday Hijinks 18-card escape rooms, which are amazing, by the way. If you would like to win a complete set of those, all you have to do is leave us a written review at your podcast supplier, stream, selector, whatever of choice, Apple Podcast, Android, Google Play, Overcast. We've gotten them from a couple of other different places. Just leave us a, a written review there and then send one of us or both of us an email and say, hey, I reviewed you over at blah. Here's my username so that we can you know, get a hold of you afterwards. And we will randomly select someone who has done that and they will win this amazing prize. You know what else? Now that it's September, I think it's hoodie weather. It is hoodie weather. And you can get your very own Family Gamers hoodie. I have a Family Gamers zip-up hoodie. I love it. By going to thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch, you can get a hoodie that says play games with your kids on the back. And it has the Family Gamers logo on the front. Or you can just get one that just has the logo on the back, I think. But there's t-shirts, there's hoodies, there's mugs for your warm coffee or tea in the morning. Pumpkin spice latte. PSL. Yeah, in the house. Gross. (laughs) By going to thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch. It's also kind of getting into like convention season. We have submitted a panel at PAX Unplugged, so hopefully we're going to be there. You can meet the whole family 
we'll let you know if that gets accepted. But if we saw, like, I can't tell you how excited I would be if we saw people in the audience with Family Gamers Marathon. Oh, man, that would be so awesome. I would lose my flipping mind. So awesome. But anyway, uh, thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch. Maybe we'll give away some Family Gamers merch Ooh. at the panel. What do you think of that? I like that idea. Hmm. Maybe you should be there. All right. Well, anyway. until then, the Family Gamers is sponsored by First Move Financial. Go to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers and learn how the team at First Move Financial can help you pile up the victory points. Thanks so much to the team at First Move for sponsoring the show. Well, I think we've made history this week. <laughs> or at least we've talked about a lot of history. We've talked right? about a lot of history. So, don't forget to tell us what your favorite history games are. But until next week, play, play games, games with, with your kids. kids.